You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 290, The Grand Reconnaissance. My focus for some time now has been on the war in the South. I last talked about the main Continental Army under General Washington back in episode 276, when we discuss the mutiny of the Pennsylvania and New Jersey lines. Before that, we go back to the fall of 1780, when Benedict Arnold fled to the British. Throughout 1780 and 81, the main British army under General Henry Clinton occupied New York City, including all of Manhattan Island and most of Long Island. The Continentals were located throughout northern New Jersey and the Hudson Valley area of New York, mostly around West Point. The French army under General Rochambeau had arrived at Newport, Rhode Island in 1780 and had not moved since then. Washington had conferred with Rochambeau at Hartford, Connecticut in the fall of 1780. As I discussed in an earlier episode, it was there that both generals had agreed that they did not have enough men and resources to attack the British in New York and agreed to focus on getting a larger and better equipped army to take on the task. Rochambeau sent his son back to Versailles to plead for more of, well, everything. Washington fought with Congress and state leaders about getting them to provide more soldiers and everything else they needed, but the few soldiers that did join did not help with New York since he really had to send as many as he could to Virginia and the Carolinas. Now, General Rochambeau's son, the Vicomte de Rochambeau, put forward his father's case for more of everything in France, but it took him another six months to return to America with an answer. French Minister Vergen was skeptical. France was fighting a world war with Britain. France's primary concern was the protection of France's valuable island colonies in the West Indies. The war in North America was supposed to be a distraction that would sap British resources. But at this point, it seemed like it was mostly sapping French resources. The war in Europe was also expanding. Britain, of course, had just declared war on the Netherlands. On top of that, when the younger Rochambeau arrived in France in December of 1780, word had just arrived that the Empress Maria Theresa of the Holy Roman Empire had died. France was concerned that this might result in a new European war involving Prussia. Virgen did not want to send a large army across the Atlantic if France itself might be threatened with an invasion by an army of Prussians. Everything Virgen was hearing from Rochambeau, from Minister Luzerne in Philadelphia, and from the American ministers Adams and Franklin in France confirmed that the Americans were barely keeping an army in the field at all. They had very few men, and no food, no clothing, no ammunition, and none of anything else they really needed to maintain an army. 
France would essentially have to finance the war for America. When the Vicomte returned to America to deliver Vergen's response, General Rochambeau sent a message for Washington to meet with him so that they could discuss the response. The Vicomte landed in Newport, Rhode Island on May 6th of 1781. Shortly thereafter, the two leaders planned to meet. Now, the likely location for this would have been Hartford, Connecticut, where they had met before, which was halfway between Washington's headquarters in New York and Rochambeau's headquarters in Rhode Island. For this meeting, however, they ruled out Hartford as a meeting place, since the Connecticut General Assembly was in session in Hartford at the time. Delegates were already using up any spare rooms in town. It's at this point that Washington's aide-de-camp, Samuel Bletchley Webb, suggested the leaders meet in Wethersfield, which was a small town a few miles south of Hartford. Webb had grown up in Wethersfield and had offered up his family's home, owned at the time by his older brother, as a suitable place to hold a conference. So, Washington and Rochambeau met in Wethersfield on May 21, 1781. It was then that Rochambeau gave Washington the news from France. The news was, France was not going to send a larger French army. It wasn't even sending over the 1,600 men that had been left behind in France when Rochambeau left and that they were all expecting would be coming soon. Only a tiny supplement of 600 soldiers would be all that France would send to America. Vergen, however, was willing to provide some funds in the hopes that it would allow the Continental Army to rebuild its own forces. France made a gift of 3.5 million livres. This money could be used to build up the Continental Army to a size that could fight the British. In addition, France had deployed a large fleet under Admiral de Grasse with 20 ships of the line and 3,200 Marines and soldiers. The fleet had left France in the spring, headed for the West Indies. The navies had to leave the West Indies by late summer to avoid hurricane season. So the news was that de Grasse would bring his fleet to North America sometime for a fall campaign in 1781. With that information, Rochambeau and Washington had to agree on a plan to make use of the French Navy when de Grasse arrived. Washington was still very much focused on retaking New York City. If the French Navy could control the waters around Manhattan, the Continentals and the French could advance into the island and compel the surrender of General Clinton and the British Army that was there. General Rochambeau disagreed with this plan. The British had an estimated 13,000 soldiers, even if Washington believed it to be only 8,000. But even using Washington's lower number, and even if the French Navy could take New York Harbor, Rochambeau's army consisted of less than 5,000 men, probably closer to 4,000. And if you combine that with the Continental Army under Washington, which had maybe 5,000 men on a good day, that really would not be enough to overwhelm British defenses on Manhattan or even maintain a siege. A good rule of thumb was that an attacker needed at least twice the forces as the defender. So instead of looking at New York, Rochambeau wanted to move their armies to Virginia. The British army under Cornwallis posed a real threat, but could be wiped out by a combined American and French force backed by the French fleet. The leaders of both armies argued over the options for two days in discussions that were later described as tense and heated. In the end, after two days of debate, 
Rochambeau acceded to Washington's demand for an attack on New York. After all, his orders from France were to support Washington's command decisions. Even here, though, Rochambeau equivocated. He said that his French army would march to join Washington's in New York, and then they would assess together whether they could attack the city. After the two men departed, Rochambeau wrote to Admiral de Grasse informing him of the discussions, but still arguing that an attack on Virginia made much more sense. Although Rochambeau was under orders to support Washington, de Grasse was not. If de Grasse sailed for the Chesapeake, there was nothing the Continentals could do to compel the French fleet to go elsewhere. Now, Rochambeau did not openly defy Washington's wishes, since he also suggested in a letter that, well, maybe after destroying Cornwallis's army in Virginia, they could still sail up to New York if time and resources permitted. Rochambeau also reached out to French minister Luzerne in Philadelphia about his plans, and afterwards Luzerne wrote also to de Grasse about the importance of taking out Cornwallis's army in Virginia. So, even after their conference, the French and American commanders did not seem to be on the same page. In mid-June, a few weeks after returning from Wethersfield, and after getting New England leaders to call up about a thousand militiamen to protect the French assets in Newport, Rochambeau began marching his army towards Washington's headquarters in New York. It took the French army nearly three weeks to reach New York State, arriving in Phillipsburg on July 5th. The combined Continental and French armies still totaled less than 8,000 men. They faced a British defensive army of nearly 15,000. Even before the French army arrived, Washington began to probe British defenses for weaknesses. On the night of July 1st, General Benjamin Lincoln led 800 Continentals on an amphibious landing on the northern end of Manhattan. Lincoln you might recall, had only rejoined Washington a few weeks earlier. We last left General Lincoln in Charleston, South Carolina, where he surrendered along with the rest of the Southern Army in the spring of 1780. After his capture in Charleston, the British had permitted Lincoln to leave on parole almost immediately. Under the terms of his parole, he was permitted to visit Philadelphia to brief Congress, but afterward was restricted to New England. By the fall of 1780, the armies had finally arranged for an exchange, which allowed Lincoln to return to active duty. However, even after the exchange, Lincoln remained in Massachusetts, primarily organizing militia and recruiting for the Continental Army. He didn't join Washington in New York until mid-June of 1781, just in time to launch his attack. Lincoln had moved his men down the Hudson River, landing on the New Jersey side near the former site of Fort Lee. Overnight, his men crossed the river into Manhattan to attack the forts there. At the same time, a French general, Armand-Louis de Gontault, the Duc de Luzon, led a night march against Morrisania. At that time, it was a Tory stronghold just to the east of northern Manhattan. At dawn, Lincoln was poised to attack the forts, but found the defenses there unexpectedly strong. His orders in that case were to abandon his attack in Manhattan and cross back over King's Bridge, back into what is today Yonkers, and then go down and aid Luzon's attack on Morrisania. Lincoln's force encountered a force of Hessian Jaegers and was forced to retreat. The two armies skirmished, 
as Lincoln marched his army back toward the main Continental Army. When they got close to the main American camp, the Hessians broke off their attack and returned to their base. Luzon heard the sound of gunfire and marched his French forces toward them, calling off his attack on Morrisania altogether. By the time he had arrived, though, the Hessians had already withdrawn. Washington observed the movements closely, again trying to assess British defenses. Similarly, British General Clinton rode out from New York City to observe the skirmishing and look for any American weaknesses. On July 6th, just a few days after Lincoln's attack, General Rochambeau arrived in Phillipsburg from his winter camp in Newport. The July heat was unbearable during the march, and many French soldiers collapsed. They needed time to recover before they would be ready to do anything. Even so, Washington was thrilled that the French army had arrived and would soon be ready to do something. The French soldiers were concerned about the condition of their allies. Washington's Continentals in New York numbered only around 3,500 troops. One French officer at the time commented that the Continentals were, quote, mostly naked, and that three-quarters of them had no shoes. Rochambeau reviewed the intelligence from the earlier raid, but he wanted to launch a second larger attack so that his officers could get a better understanding of British defenses. So Washington and Rochambeau agreed to launch what would become called the Grand Reconnaissance. This would be a rather sizable attack on the British lines, but not with the goal of overrunning them. It was only to determine where the British defenses were and how strong they were. After the French soldiers had a few days to recover from their march, torrential rain set in, which delayed the Allies from launching their larger attack for even a little longer. While waiting for the weather to clear, Washington and Rochambeau crossed into New Jersey to view the western side of British defenses from across the river. On July 18th, the two generals, along with a pretty small force of only about 150 men, observed the British, making note of what they could see from the Palisades. They observed that the British had done their job, stripping the area of trees and bushes that could provide cover for an attacking force. They noted at least six battalions of British and German forces behind ditches and abatis that discouraged any direct assault. Still, this was not enough to understand fully what the British defenses were going to be if they were to assault Manhattan. So, a few days later, on the night of July 21st, the combined armies of about 4,000 men marched in four columns towards Valentine Hill, a small rise just to the north of Manhattan Island. In the early pre-dawn hours of July 22nd, two Continental and two French columns converged there to prepare for an attack. Again, the French officers noted how poorly clothed and fed the Continentals were, but they also noted that the Continentals marched efficiently, silently, and in good order. While the soldiers were poorly supplied, they acted as professional soldiers. The combined army formed a line about two and a half miles long, with one end at the former Fort Independence, which the Americans had abandoned years earlier following the British offensive. The only remaining enemy garrison across the river from Manhattan was a place called Redoubt No. 8, which was a short distance away. Redoubt No. 8 sat right across Harlem Creek from Manhattan, and it was some distance from King's Bridge, meaning that it was rather isolated. But British forces on the other side of the river in Manhattan had boats that could reach the Redoubt, 
and the redoubt itself was garrisoned by Hessian and Loyalist forces. The Allied forces wanted to take the redoubt so that they could get a view of the British defenses from the east. From the redoubt, they simply had to look across Harlem Creek into Manhattan. As the Americans and French advanced on redoubt number 8, Hessian pickets fired warning shots to alert the British forces to the enemy's presence. Within 15 minutes, British dragoons were crossing Harlem Creek to reinforce the redoubt. British artillery from Fort Laurel Hill, also just across the creek, had a cannon range that could also support the redoubt. Washington ordered the assault on the redoubt with two French divisions and one Continental. The assault was reinforced by French artillery that had arrived just in time to participate. The British defenses held, and the Allied assault fell back. Seeing that they weren't going to take the redoubt, Washington and Rochambeau used the time to get a better idea of defenses, not only at redoubt number 8, but also nearby Fort Tryon, Fort Niphausen, and Fort Laurel Hill in northern Manhattan. They also noted that the British had built a wall to prevent any advance between the forts on Manhattan. At that point, Washington and Rochambeau left the main army under the command of General Lincoln and rode off to see how the French advance on Morrisania was going. The two generals had only with them a small contingent of dragoons when they encountered a group of about 20 Tories. The dragoons charged the enemy, who retreated into a nearby house. These two small groups skirmished for some time. At one point, one of Rochambeau's aides, the Duc de Damas, had his horse shot out from under him. After the horse fell, a Tory charged out of the house to attack another of Rochambeau's aides, Alexander Berthier, screaming, Die, you dog of a Frenchman! Berthier responded by pulling out his pistol and shooting the attacker in the chest. The main talk of the officers, though, was the Baron von Klosen. As he had chased the Tories, a tree branch knocked off his hat. He stopped his horse and dismounted to retrieve it, and by the time he mounted again, the rest of his party was gone, and he found himself alone. Closet eventually caught up with them, but all of the officers had thought he had been killed while retrieving his hat, so his survival was a pleasant surprise, although they all gave him a hard time for risking his life to retrieve his hat. In the end, none of the soldiers on the American and French party had been killed or even seriously wounded in the encounter. The skirmish eventually ended, and the party continued on its way. They reached Morrisania, where they could get another good view of the British defenses on Manhattan, this time from the south of the main British defensive line. There, though, the party came under fire from British cannons in New York Harbor. A panic guide noted that after he had galloped away, Generals Washington and Rochambeau followed him at a slow trot, apparently unconcerned about the cannonballs whirring about them. By 9 p.m., after about 24 hours of constant movement, the generals had a quick meal and got a few hours of sleep. By 4 a.m. the next day, July 23rd, they were back in the saddle, and this time headed for Throg's Neck to view the British defenses on Long Island. As the surveyors and engineers did their work at Throg's Neck, Rochambeau and Washington discussed what they had seen. Both men were exhausted, though, and fell asleep that afternoon. While they slept, the tide came in, turning their peninsula into an island. At that point, a British Navy ship sailed up and fired on the party. 
The two generals had to grab their saddles and run up to the northern part of the island. There, aides got both men onto boats and back to the main shore. Their horses had to swim for it. One of Washington's lifeguards was killed in this artillery barrage. The rest of the party, however, managed to get out of cannon range, and they soon rejoined the main army near King's Bridge. The conclusion of the reconnaissance was that the British defenses were quite formidable. The Allies at this point estimated the enemy had about 18,000 soldiers, and there was no way to storm the Manhattan defenses from the north, at least not without horrific losses. A water landing below those defenses could be easily blocked by the British Navy, and the danger of being encircled and entrapped was too great, even if they could raise an army large enough to challenge the British. Now, as I said, Rochambeau had believed that New York was not a viable target from the beginning. But armed with this evidence, he seemed to convince Washington to give up on the goal of an attack on New York and instead look toward Virginia. A frustrated Washington finally conceded that his goal of taking New York in 1781 would be impossible. In his diary, about a week later, he lamented that only if the states had fulfilled their quotas, the attack would have been possible. But conceding to reality, Washington finally began to consider an operation to the south rather than attack on New York. His dream of ending the war by recapturing New York came to an end. Next week, we're going to head a little further north as the soldiers in the Mohawk Valley continue to contest British raids from Canada. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, John Celentano, and Michael Mulhern, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Greg Pusak, and 10 Crucial Days. Welcome also to Joe Banner, who joined the Privy Council last month. Joe will receive his first flag magnet this month. All of my supporters on Patreon at the $10 level or higher receive a different magnet each month with a flag from the American Revolution. It's my way of saying thank you for your continued support that makes this podcast possible. Thanks also to Eric Saunders, Paul Kallenberger, 
and Gary Mitchell for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. I also wanted to give a quick correction, or at least a clarification. In my last episode, I mentioned that after General Anthony Wayne executed several soldiers at York, he marched his army down to Virginia at only about eight or nine miles per day. James Angler reached out to me after that episode. His Maryland chapter of the Sons of the American Revolution has been working to mark Wayne's march from Pennsylvania to Virginia, and his research indicated that the soldiers seemed to be marching at a good speed. While a straight line from York to where Wayne met up with Lafayette required an average daily march of eight or nine miles per day, the march was not a straight line, so it was a longer distance, and the army also had to stop for bad weather or crossing rivers or other events. So to make it to Virginia the time they did, they had to march quite a longer distance many days, often over 20 miles per day. So if my comment gave the implication that the soldiers were moving slowly due to poor morale following the execution of some of their comrades, that doesn't appear to be the case. I also wanted to remind everyone of our upcoming live event on Zoom, December 13th, 2023 at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. We will be discussing the Boston Tea Party. This is the 250th anniversary of the Tea Party, which actually happens a couple days later on December 16th. We're going to talk about why tea became such an important point of contention before the war, and also why the Patriots in Massachusetts felt it necessary to destroy the tea when other colonies simply impounded it or forced the tea ships to turn around. We'll also look at why this event became so important to the outbreak of war just over a year later. I hope this will be the first of many sesterscentennial events that we can hold over the next few years. Please join us for this great discussion. I've sent out a link to everyone on my mailing list. If you didn't get that Zoom link, because you're not on my mailing list, please get on it. I will send out another email before the event happens. If you don't want to be on my mailing list for some reason, but you want a link, just email me. I'll be happy to send you one. The event is completely free, and everyone's invited. On this week's episode, we finally see the French army in America moving out of Newport, Rhode Island, and getting ready to do battle. General Washington and General Rochambeau still can't agree on a target, but we see how Rochambeau was steering everything toward the showdown at Yorktown. Rochambeau was an experienced general who knew that attacking New York would likely lead to failure. But he slowly brought over Washington and the Continental leadership to this point by allowing them to see and understand just how defensible New York really was for the British. The main reason that France had seen an attack on New York as a loser was the fact that there was almost no Continental Army to use in the attack. Despite the rather large cash gift that France made, Americans were getting tired of war and it was hard to enlist them. The Continental Congress was proving an abject failure in getting the states to comply with enlistment requirements and even worse at supplying the small army that it did have. I didn't mention it in the main episode, But this was about the time, July 1781, that Alexander Hamilton wrote The Continentalist Number 1. This was a paper calling for a new federal government that would be up to the job. I've included a link to The Continentalist Number 1 in my blog entry for this episode, in case Alexander Hamilton's writing on this topic interests you. Now, Because an attack with New York was not realistic, Rochambeau was using his communications with Admiral de Grasse, Minister Luzerne, 
and others to push Washington into accepting this reality. I should mention that Washington was also lobbying where he could. He had sent an agent down to the West Indies to meet with Admiral de Grasse personally and encourage the Admiral to sail up to New York, but this proved completely ineffective. I also mentioned two minor French officers who got into a skirmish with Tories riding with Washington and Rochambeau in New York. One of them, Louis-Alexandre Berthier, would go on to become Napoleon's chief of staff many years later. The other officer, the Duc de Damas, was going to have to flee France during the Revolution. He ended up in the Netherlands, where he fought against the French Revolutionary Army, and he only returned to France years later as part of the Bourbon Restoration after Napoleon's defeat. There are no books that are devoted to the Grand Reconnaissance. It was a relatively minor event by itself, but for me and for many people, it does mark the beginning of the movement that ends up at Yorktown, Virginia. Many books that cover Yorktown give at least a few pages to this event, and since we're moving toward Yorktown, this is probably a good time to begin recommending some books on that topic for further reading. So, my book recommendation this week is Victory at Yorktown, The Campaign That Won the Revolution by Richard Ketchum. This book looks at the full campaign, beginning with the French army at Newport through the final victory at Yorktown, Virginia. It's a somewhat older book, first published in 2004. It is available on Kindle, and there's also a great many used copies out there. I think it's the last book that Ketchum published. He was an author who began writing books about the Revolution in the 1960s, and I've recommended some of his other books in the past. Ketchum passed away in 2012 at the age of 89. So if you want to get a book that covers the entire Yorktown campaign and puts everything in perspective, take a look for Richard Ketchum's Victory at Yorktown. My online recommendation is a YouTube video put out by Revolutionary Westchester 250. They held an event last year, 2022, that brought together several experts specifically on the Grand Reconnaissance, which of course took place in Westchester. It's a wonderful set of lectures on the topic by people who have really focused on these events. So if you want to know more specifically about the Grand Reconnaissance, you'll want to watch this video. As always, I've included a link on my blog and website. My question this week comes from Jerome Wilson, who asks, You often mention the poorly equipped Continentals during winter, where they didn't have shoes, and sometimes no pants. Did they really spend the winters barefoot, and I presume bare-bottomed if they didn't have pants? Just how threadbare were these brave men? All the reenactments have them wearing such spiffy uniforms. Well, yes, Jerome, the uniform problems were a continuing problem for the Army. And I think we take clothing for granted in our post-Industrial Revolution world because clothing is so cheap and easy to produce. In the 18th century, handmade clothing was very expensive. Consider that someone had to hand-spin the thread, weave it into cloth, and then hand-sew the cloth into a piece of clothing. This was a very time-consuming and therefore expensive process. And that's why most people at the time had only one or two outfits. Buying and selling used clothes was common. Even inheriting a suit from a dead relative was a common thing because clothing was so valuable. Clothing was usually made on an individual basis, 
either by a family member or a professional seamstress that produced custom clothing for a specific client. There was no such thing as mass production. So producing clothing for the Army was especially difficult, and add to that that Congress never had any money to pay any contractors anyway, and you can see how the situation got even worse. So imagine wearing the same pair of wool pants for a year, doing lots of heavy labor, and imagine what kind of condition those pants would be in after a time. There were reports of Valley Forge of soldiers sharing pants for guard duty. The pantsless soldier would remain in the cabin until his pants returned. Shoes would also wear out in a matter of weeks or months when soldiers were doing all this hard marching, and that meant going barefoot. In the winter, that could easily result in frostbite or other problems. And there are many stories of soldiers literally freezing to death on these winter marches. So it's probably an understatement to say it was a pretty miserable situation. And even as I mentioned in today's episode, French officers were shocked at how poorly clad the Continental soldiers were. The terrible condition of most clothes is not something that's obviously going to be shown in drawings or later recreations. You mentioned, of course, that reenactments don't show this. I imagine most reenactors don't want to walk around with rags falling off their bodies. There were times when men had clothing, which is probably what they want to represent at the reenactments, and I imagine a reenactor going around pantsless would not play well at family-friendly events. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.